Well, if you're joining us after having been away for a while, let me briefly say that we are about to conclude a series. We have two more weeks planned after this morning. We are concluding a series where we've been looking first to Scripture and the gospel truths that it gives us to believe. And then secondly, we've been finding those truths in our hymn book that we sing. And this morning, we are going to turn our attention to a historic, beloved hymn of the church, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, by Isaac Watts, who lived in the late 1600s to mid-1700s. A beautiful hymn you, you probably are familiar with, but maybe not quite in the way that I will try to underscore some things this morning. But before we get to that, uh, our text that will show the truths within the hymn is from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This is a snippet from Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It's a very few short sentences of his fuller sermon. But I want to remind you about the Peter who is preaching these bold words. It was just days before this, weeks before this, months before this, that Peter cowered before a servant girl three times, just as Jesus said that he would. Peter, who seemed to have that zealous and fiery personality frequently in Scripture, when confronted with a servant girl, confronted by a servant girl as being associated with Jesus, he denied it not once, not twice, but three times. He cowered to a young servant girl who in that culture would really have had no voice, no power, no emphasis whatsoever over Peter. And he cowered to her. And now in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon with a boldness that is rarely seen. And he preaches it to men, many men, and many of which would have had authority. And somehow, cowering Peter has become bold Peter. And as we read this, you'll hear that boldness. And I want you to remember his cowardice. And the ultimate question that we'll briefly ask and that we'll revisit someday in the future is, what has gotten into Peter? How can a man be so cowardly and then so bold? And of course, you know, the answer is when you've experienced the resurrected Jesus, all kinds of profound change comes into your life. And the change of a personality and the change of one's boldness is a small thing for the Lord to change. And Peter is evidence of that. And the other thing, of course, that you know is true, when the Holy Spirit comes upon a man or comes upon a woman, profound change is expected. It's more than possible, it's expected. And so Peter is this beautiful example of how God can change a man. God can embolden a man. God can gift and empower a man or a woman or a child to execute God's will. So listen to these words, remembering his cowardice in weeks previous. Remember now, just to this snippet, listen now to this brief snippet from his bold sermon. Acts chapter 2, 
verses 22 to 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Let's pray that God might encourage and even embolden our hearts with his spirit and by his word. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us this morning to survey the cross of Jesus? And as you worked in Peter, Lord, would you work in us as a part of your church that we would be new creatures, emboldened to speak of truth, of your truth, and to share that truth with a lost and dying world. Lord, we ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I hope to, with you, quite simply, to survey the cross. To survey the cross. You know that we're going to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. So we're going to survey that wondrous cross together to try to embolden our singing, not just of that hymn today, but every time we sing that hymn in the future. So first, what does it mean to survey? That language is somewhat familiar to us, but we use it differently in our culture than maybe we understand the hymn to mean. Uh, we survey land. We have land surveyed. We will pay a surveyor to come and to measure and scope, to meticulously work out the dimensions and boundaries of a land. Right? We survey a land. At Erskine College, you can take a class called Bible Survey. Old Testament Survey, New Testament Survey, in which you study all the events and details of the Holy Scriptures. You survey the Bible from A to Z, from start to finish. And of course, you know what it is to have survey questions, right? Someone will want to examine and study a demographic of people and they'll give a questionnaire filled with questions, a survey to try to get their arms around a people group to better understand them. And so to survey the wondrous cross, we'll see, is, is really the same thing. It's not to think briefly about the cross, it's to meditate on the cross, to really pause and think about what God has done for his church. And the truth is, we tend to sing songs like this without much surveying going on. Our lives are busy. And to be still and to meditate, to think, is not something that most people do. But this morning, we will intend to survey the cross together. 
And Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24 are going to provide that opportunity in a few short verses. I have three points for you this morning, and they are simple. They are these. Jesus was accredited by God. That's Peter's first preaching point. Secondly, wicked men, lawless, godless men, nailed him to a cross. That's the second thing Peter says in his bold sermon. And then thirdly, that beautiful, but God. Though wicked men nailed him to the cross, but God had a deliberate plan with foreknowledge and raised him from the dead. And in these three points, we find the simplest explanation of the gospel that we believe. So first, Jesus was accredited by God. Verse 22 says this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Peter says that, look, Jesus of Nazareth, this man, he was accredited, he was proved, he was validated among us by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. Three things, three kinds of validations of who Jesus was. And when Peter says this, the understanding was, oh yeah, the scriptures said that one day a Messiah would come and he would be validated by miracles, wonders, and signs. And so you see, Peter is beginning to make this case that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's proved himself as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And one of those promises that had gone past those people, just as it goes past us, we read this morning in Isaiah 53, verse 5 that the Messiah would have to suffer. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. You see, Jesus proves Himself through His life, His death, and His resurrection to be the very Messiah that had been promised in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And miracles, wonders, and signs had made up his earthly ministry until they put him to death on a cross. Miracles, wonders, and signs. Now, what's interesting here, and part of how you see the boldness of Jesus, and I tried to emphasize it when I read it, is that Peter says that he was accredited to you, that God did these things among you, that God worked through him as you know. And so Peter is turning the screws on these people really with a kind of shameful indictment that you were a part of this. He did these things among you, you saw these things, and what was your response? Point number two, he was put to death by wicked men. Some translations say 
godless men. Some translations say lawless men. And Peter says to this crowd, the formerly shy, timid, cowardly Peter says, and you put him to death with wicked men. It's an indictment, and it's a strong indictment that was true. Rob Rayburn says this on this text. He says, The immediate audience of Jesus did not dispute the miracles of Jesus. Think about this. These people, his immediate audience who saw Jesus' life and ministry, did not dispute the fact that he had miracles. Even the Lord's enemies did not deny that he had performed miracles or works of wondrous power. But their error was to attribute the source of that supernatural power, not to God, but to the devil. No contemporary witness of Jesus, whether friend or foe, disputed that he performed the signs and wonders and miracles that the scriptures record. Do you hear that? That's exactly right. It was never contested by the immediate audience that knew Jesus and saw him. They knew that he had done these things. They didn't dispute it. But they, in their perversity, attributed it not to God, but to the devil. And Peter makes an indictment out of that. And he says, you were a part of the wicked men, the lawless, godless men who did this. Verse 23, he says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter says, you did it with the help of those wicked men, lawless, godless men. You have been unjust judges, he would say. Unjust judges. Judges, You have wrongly accused, wrongly convicted. You lifted your voice in support of this. And so Peter indicts the crowd. But then he brings us good news. And that was that God had a deliberate plan all along. God knew what he was doing. God was the author of all things since eternity past. He had a foreknowledge, a knowing he had a perfect will that would not be thwarted, and he raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 24, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is a short summation of what God has done for His church, for those who look to Him in faith and believe and trust Him. Jesus willingly laid down His life before lawless and godless and wicked men to be a ransom for them. A mysterious and beautiful act of mercy on God's behalf to show mercy to sinners. This was no accident that Jesus was somehow had to come up with a plan B of what he would do. 
Jesus was executing the Father's will from all eternity, everything going precisely as it should. On this passage, Rob Rayburn says again, Jesus did not die because of some ghastly miscalculation on his part or because he was overpowered by his enemies. Jesus died because, as he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And so what we have here is nothing less than the gospel itself. What the scriptures reveal, the promised message of a Messiah from Genesis to Revelation. God has never been surprised. He's never been caught flat-footed. He's never been late. He's always been on time executing a plan of redemption. And a plan of redemption that is to be marveled over by those who were the recipients of such a rich grace and profound mercy. It is to be marveled over. And the question this morning as we turn to application is, have you marveled over it? Have you ever been awe? Have you ever been in awe of what God says He has done for you? If by faith you believe in the person and in the work of Jesus, what He has done for you, have you ever really personally, when nobody else is looking, have you ever been in awe of it? Has it ever struck you profoundly the wondrous love of the cross? That Jesus died a substitutionary death for sinners. If you've struggled to marvel over the cross, if you've not seen it as so wondrous, my hope as we, as we conclude the sermon and prepare for the hymn is to help you marvel over the cross. And, and the way that we'll do that is actually by surveying the cross or literally surveying death by crucifixion, which is what the cross means. Now, for some of you, the cross is an image that you're familiar with. We have it on top of our church building. Some of you wear it on a necklace around your neck as jewelry. Maybe it's some home decoration for you on a wall in a study. We're familiar with the cross, and that's how we primarily see it, is in decorative fashion. And that's not wrong because it is a centerpiece of our faith and it is the means by which redemption has been accomplished. But if that's the immediate thought, that we see it as jewelry or home decoration, I think it's hard to marvel over that. I think it's hard to see it as wondrous. The way you marvel over it, the way you see it as wondrous is when you survey it. And the way that you survey it is you hear what it actually was, how crucifixion became the means of death of Jesus, and why it was an instrument of death. And so I'm going to share with you words from a doctor who is an emergency room doctor in Lansing, Michigan. This is from an article written by Michael Patrick of No Relation to Me. 
And the title of the article is The Truth of What It Is to Be Crucified. And I'm just going to read the comments from the medical doctor. And we have a lot of medical doctors here. Uh, I'd be interested to hear your response to this privately. But he says this. This is Dr. John Derry, an emergency room physician at Sparrow Hospital in Lansing, Michigan. He says this. Crucifixion sought first to psychologically destroy someone before the Romans even started to physically hurt the individual. He says it began with imprisonment the night before, creating anticipation and dread of, was, of what was to come. Now we understand that. If you've ever, if you've ever uh, been anxious the night before a big exam, you know that it can keep you up, you can worry, you can stress. If you've been anxious before going in for surgery or some medical procedure, you understand that the human body can get worked up in knots. How much more if you know you'll be crucified the next day? And that's his point, that it was a kind of psychological torture. He goes on to say that then, the next day, they would first scourge the individual with a whip to open up wounds of the flesh that would then become sores that would bleed, sometimes profusely. The idea was to get the person to bleed as much as possible so that later they would be lightheaded and dizzy and more likely to pass out. They would tie the 70-pound to 100-pound crossbeam to that tattered, shredded, bloody back of the victim and would then make them carry it through the streets to the outskirts of the town all while being jeered and humiliated in the process now this is where it gets a little bit graphic and I questioned whether or not to share this given that we have children and people of all ages and different kinds of squirmishness but I really do think if you're going to survey the cross, you have to understand what it means that someone did this for you. So I'll continue with the words of the doctor. He said, The nailing to the cross was not through the hands, but between the two bones below the wrist, so that the wrist bones could bear the entire weight of the body on the cross. Having a nail driven through there would feel like lightning going through your middle and ring fingers. It was placed there because it wouldn't hit any major blood vessels, but it would hit the median nerve, which would cause a seizure of those fingers and make the hands flex down in excruciating contracture. The person on the cross would not be able to relax. He said a similar strategy was applied to the nailing of the feet. They would nail the feet to the cross between the second and third metatarsal so that the body weight could be held up on top of the massive bones of the feet. Those nailed feet were needed for leverage while on the cross. And the most horrific part is that when you naturally take a deep breath, 
you pull the muscles of your diaphragm down. In other words, you actively breathe in and you passively exhale. But when you're left hanging on a cross, your arms outstretched, you actually inhale very easily, but you have to work hard in order to exhale the air out of your lungs. You'd have to pull or push your body up in order to expel air. You have to work very hard to get air out of your lungs and breathing actually kills you because you cannot get air out of your chest. And then he concludes and says, the Romans wanted to prolong as much torture as possible. And so they gave Christ a mix of myrrh to drink off of a sponge. But the intention was not to relieve his thirst. It was to use his thirst. And that myrrh would serve as an analgesic to alleviate some of the pain and to give him enough strength to endure to suffer more. But if Christ, of course, would not welcome that sponge. And so it's graphic. It's, it's amazingly graphic to read and to be caused to actually think about what happened for us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you understand that it should be us on that cross paying for our own sins. But Jesus willingly went there. The will of the Father, executed by the Son, with the power of the Holy Spirit, for us. He suffered in such a way that we would not have to suffer. That's what it is to survey the cross. That's why Isaac Watts, writing in the early 1700s, long ago, Isaac Watts, known as the, 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 the modern father of hymnody, excuse me, the father of modern hymnody. He would write of the cross in so many of his hymns. He actually surveyed it. He thought about it. He meditated on it. He dwelled on what had been done for the church and what had been done for him. Now, when we sing these older hymns, sometimes the language is archaic. Sometimes the imagery is not clear to us. So before we sing it, I thought, well, let's hear the hymn maybe in a modernized way. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, see if this helps bring the hymn to life for you. When I really think carefully about the cross as an instrument of death used for the horrific and barbaric punishment of the most despised criminals, it puts things in a new perspective for me. For instance, my most significant personal achievements, my most enjoyed personal possessions, all things me, suddenly pale in comparison to the cross. And in fact, I'm embarrassed that I have treasured those little things so much as I have and have thought so little about the cross. Oh, what a prideful and pitiful man I am. Lord, may I never boast 
or take pride in those things again. May I only boast of the cross that Christ my God died upon for me. All those empty, small things that I'm so easily given to and distracted by, may I willingly give them up and lose them forever. Lord, put them to death before they steal my attention again. The evidence of God's love for me is rich. The cross and the body that hung on it from head to toe is evidence of two profound truths for me that there has never been a greater love and there has never been a worse injustice than Jesus dying on the cross. It is as ironic as a crown of glory made out of sharp thorns intended to bring pain. Even if the whole world was mine to give, it would be an embarrassingly small present to give to the one who bled and died for my sin. The only thing he deserves is everything. My body, my soul, my life, my everything belongs to this true king. That's what it is to survey the cross. To think and to consider what has been done for you. What has been done for your family. What has been done for the church. Let's pray that as we sing this hymn, we might survey it as we should and see the profound love of God for His bride, the church. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks, a humble and hearty thanks for what you have done for sinful men, sinful women, sinful children. Lord, we confess our hearts, they do chase after vain and empty things in this life. And I pray that you would use this hymn, even this morning, to draw our attention heavenward to acknowledge how brief and fleeting this life is and how empty and vain the things that have charmed us most really are when compared to the cross. So Lord, would you embolden your church this morning? Would you use these gospel truths from Isaac Watts from hundreds of years ago for the good of your church? And Lord, would you give us something to think upon, to meditate upon this week as we live our lives for you. We ask it and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.